Today's the first day of two services, and I'll tell you what, I was surprised. We had a lot of people at the 9 a.m. service and then a few at the 1045, and so I figured people would like to sleep in a little bit more. Tyler. So, but it seemed like if we were like to get up, maybe it's because it's NFL kickoff Sunday and everybody's like, we need to get home pl- plenty of time to watch the game. Tyler's like, I can make it. They're going to lose anyways. Who cares? Uh, that You never know. Uh, so I'm thankful you guys are here. I'm excited to be in Exodus today. In Exodus chapter 15 is where we're going to start off. Um, in Exodus chapter 15, I'll just set it up. Last week, Dustin preached on Exodus chapter 14, and that's the Israelites coming out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and God protecting them and them crossing over on dry land, which was interesting, right? Because it was dry land, even though it should have been wet. God created a path for them and did a miracle on that path of drying that land so they could walk across. And so they come out, God leads them in a direction that wasn't an easy one. He leads them the longer way around, the longer way to where they were going. And God guides them in that, and they complain, and they grumble to God, and they said, hey, why'd you lead us out here? Wasn't there enough graves in Egypt? And God continues to protect them, and that brings us to Exodus chapter 15, after God had... um, gotten rid of all the Egyptians after they had all been consumed by the Red Sea. Now we're in Exodus chapter 15 where Moses sings a song. Moses sings a song of victory. A song to God about how he had protected them, how he had guided them, how he had led them out. When's the last time we sang a song to God? A victory to God. Thank you, God, for the victory. See, when we sing, when we worship like we just did, the reason that we sing, the reason that we delight is because the victories that God has given us. And so the songs that we listen to, the songs that we sing are a reflection of the victory that God has given us. See, worship, we sometimes forget and we sometimes do it uh, just out of routine or just because everybody else is doing it or we look at the words and we try to sing them well, but we don't understand that those words actually mean something. That those words are actually big. That those words actually are us saying, God, this is who you are. You are the mighty God. You are the one that I love. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Those are those songs to God saying, God, this is who you are. You are above. You are beyond. You are vast. You are beautiful. You are everything to me. When Moses sings this song right here, we'll see the beauty in it. We'll see the intimacy in it, the desire for God that's contained in it. And my prayer is that it would challenge us that when God gives us a victory, which he did today, that you woke up and you got out of bed, that's a victory. I don't know about you guys, but there's some mornings when my alarm goes off, and I ha- I, every morning, actually, I have to pray to God that he'll allow me to get out of the bed. Right? It's, it's early in the morning. It might be cold in your house, whatever the case may be, and the bed just feels so good, and you don't know if you can get up. And it's not just being lazy, it's literally a spiritual battle to get out of that bed some days. We're like, God, just give me the strength to get up, just give me the strength to move, help me to be able to tackle this day the way that you've called me to tackle it. So every single morning when God gives us those small victories, we should praise him for it. Every morning when we make it somewhere safely or every morning when our kids wake up without a runny nose, we should praise God for it, right? We should tell God that he's given us a victory. 
And then we should praise God for the ultimate victory in which he has given us the death of Jesus Christ on the cross so that we, we can be redeemed, so that we can be with him for eternity in heaven. God gives us so many victories, but so often our eyes are blinded to them because all we can see is the failures. All we can see is the defeats. All we can see is the ways that he has not showed up. Or has he showed up and it just wasn't the way that we expected? See, sometimes God shows up, but it's not in the way that we expect. So we discredit it or we move on from it. But Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, let's look at this song that Moses is singing. And then it says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver, he has hurled into the sea, referencing what God did to the Egyptians when they pursued them and the sea grasped them. It says, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. This part right here, he has become my salvation, is Moses speaking in prophetic wisdom about Christ and his coming. He has become my salvation. This word here is the same word that's used in the New Testament when it talks about the salvation of Christ. So Moses is prophetically speaking, whether he knew or he didn't know, he's saying that the Lord is his salvation. He says, he is my God, I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. See, he says, he is my God, and I will give him praise for that, but he's also my father's God. Moses says this because he was also the God of Abraham, he was also the God of Jacob, he was also the God of Isaac, he was also the God of his ancestors. God's love never failed, God's love never changed. The same love that Moses had was the same love that God had first offered to Abraham, first offered to uh, Adam and Eve. That love was still true, that promise was still true. And so he says, I will praise him for the love that he has for me now, I will praise him for who he is to me right now, but I will also praise him for who he has been. And then it says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. It's saying God is a warrior. He took the whole Egyptian army out through his power, but he also says he is his name. What does that mean? Well, in Exodus, we see that God, uh, when speaking to Moses, says that I am the great I am. And so Moses is praising him for being who he said he was, for being the great I am. See, God is so much bigger than we uh, give him credit for sometimes. And sometimes we give Satan the same credit that we give God. I don't know if you guys have ever heard someone say, well, Satan made me do it or Satan got in my head. The reality is Satan does not have the ability, the power to do that. Satan is small compared to God. Satan has no victory where God has victory. See, so often at the time we think that Satan is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. We think that Satan is omnipresent, which means all-present. And we think that Satan is omniscient, which means all-knowing. But God is the only one who is all three of those things. So Satan does not contain the same power as God. So when we fail, it's because our sin nature chose to fail. It's because we allowed sin to take precedent over what we wanted from sin instead of what God gave us. And so it says, he, the Lord is his name. You don't wake up in the morning and say, I am my name, right? Because your name does not contain power. But the name of the Lord contains an almighty power. 
It's the same name that created the heavens and the earth. It's the same name that spoke fish into existence. It's the same name that spoke uh, the birds and the lions and the, and the sea and the uh, whales in the sea and the sharks in the sea. It's the same name that spoke all of that into existence in the book of Genesis. It's the same name that knitted you together in your mother's womb. The same name of Jesus Christ, the same power of Jesus Christ is still there. He, he is still worthy. So he says, he is his name. It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall, and the deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. And so right here, Moses is singing praise to God for how he split the Red Sea, how he swallowed up the Egyptian army. In uh, Israelite cosmology, they have this idea that the, the, uh, the earth and then under the earth is this place called Sheol, which is a place called hell today is how we interpret that word. And then below that is just called the depths. And so when it says that God swallowed them up, it's saying that God's power by his voice swallowed them up, consumed them. He didn't have to go and fight. He just said it. He just did it through his power and it consumed them. His majesty, his power was unleashed, his, his wrath against them. Why did God have wrath against them? Why was his anger poured out? Why did God have to consume them? Well, because they rejected God in favor of false gods. They rejected the name of God for a false worship, for a false idol. And there has to be punishment for rejection of God. There has to be those two sides of the coin. God has to have victory, and for there to be victory, there has to be feet for us when we continually reject God and continually choose sin there has to be the rejection of God the eternal separation from him so his anger was poured out on the Egyptians they were swallowed up by the earth the water consumed them it says by the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up and so what it's saying here is the blast of your nostrils is a poetic form of the word wind it says the wind blew and it consumed them. I don't know if you guys ever, when it was raining and thundering when you were a kid, and someone or your mom or your dad told you that was God bowling, right? Or you did something bad, you messed up, and God said, look, or your mom said, look, you made God cry. Right, and it's raining. That's not true, right? That's something that maybe your parents told you to <laughs> uh, guilt you, maybe shame you. And so now you can go home and be like, hey, I got to tell you something. When you told me God was crying because well, I broke the lamp, that was not theologically correct, right? And so you can say that to them and have a good conversation. But the poetic piece right here is that God's all-powerfulness, all he has to do is breathe and the winds obey him. All he has to do is breathe and it can consume. His plan is carried out no matter how uh, powerless we are, no matter how powerful we think we are, God's plan is always carried out. He can breathe and consume the Egyptians. It says, the surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Talking about how it just piled up, how God did that. 
God made a dry land. God split the water in half because God is the creator of the water. And so when we read these verses, we see that God, when a lot of the words in here, when it talks about water, is the same words that was used in the book of Genesis when God creates the seas. The vastness of the sea, the vastness of the oceans that God created. He sa- it says the depths. When it says the depths here, it's talking about ununderstandably deep. So like us today, we have submarines, we have measuring systems that can measure the sea, but we still can't get to the bottom. See, the Israelites, even back then, knew that the depths of the sea were greater than what they could imagine. They didn't have that technology, they didn't have that, but what they understood was that when God creates, He creates vastly. He doesn't create small, He creates momentous things. He creates huge things. And it's always, when he creates, it's always far beyond what we can understand. And so the Israelites see this uh, representation of water and they're going back to creation and how God created vastly and uh, insurmountable things that they couldn't understand. And he says, you created the oceans that destroyed your enemy through your power. Majesty, the power of God is on display. Moses is saying, God, you are creator. You are everything. Then in verse 9, it says, the enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters who among the gods is like you, Lord. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed in your strength and guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble in anguish, will grip them, the people of Philistia. So right here, it's talking about the Egyptians and how they took it upon their own pride and their own ability to chase after the Israelites after God had brought plague after plague to help them understand that he is greater than anything that they know. He is greater than all the false gods that they worship. And he is helping. He's trying to get them to release the Israelites and he releases the Israelites. Finally, Pharaoh does. But then they leave and Pharaoh's anger and his pride consumes him again. And he says, we'll chase them and we'll kill them. We'll bring them back. We'll divide their spoils. Is what they thought. But it says they sank like lead in your mighty waters. And it says, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Hitting on that fact that all the, the Egyptians had all these false gods. That God took out one by one by one with the plague. Showing them that there is no one that you can worship except the Lord, the great I am. So Moses sings to him, there is no one like you. Osiris is not like you. Ar is not like you. None of these gods are like you. Isis is not like you. None of these gods is like the God that we worship. You're majestic. You work, you have strength. When you breathe, it can devour our enemies. When you stretch out your right hand, the earth swallows up your enemies. It's futile to fight against it. But in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, and you will guide them. So in verse 12, it says, you stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. It's talking about that eternal separation from God. 
That when we continue to reject God, there is the penalty of eternal separation from him. And if we continue to reject him, that's what we're going to receive. We'll receive eternity without him. But there's a way out. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people who you have redeemed. In your strength, and you will guide them to your holy dwelling. He's talking about eternity with him, but he's also using their situation. He's using a prophetic situation to say this is what is to come. But he's also saying, I'm going to give you the promised land, the land that I promised you. It says the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. God is fulfilling a promise right here. Moses sees that God is finally going to give them the promised land that they have been waiting for. That all the the inhabitants of this land will be seized by the power of God, will be seized by the fear of God if they just continue to walk in the strength of God. Now we'll see coming up that they don't continue to do that and God makes them wander for a while. But it's saying if you just trust me, Moses, he sees that they're on the brink of the promised land. They're on the brink of the promise of God. All they have to do is trust him. All they have to do is walk with him. And they'll receive their inheritance, the place the Lord made as their dwelling, the sanctuary the Lord your hands have established. We'll receive that. All we have to do is trust him. So the Lord reigns forever and ever. So as we read these verses, what we see is that the Israelites, they, they were proclaiming God. They were worshiping God. They were happy about the victory that God had given them. But just in a few short chapters, we'll see that their tone changes. They forget about the ways that God had worked. They forget about the ways that God had moved. Just right after they come out of Egypt, they forget about the way that God had led them. It sounds so much like us, humans. We see God move and then we forget about the victory that he's given us. Or we want God to move, and so we pray that he'll move, and we'll pray that he'll move, and then when he doesn't give us what we were expecting, we reject him. We say, well, okay, God, you said you're going to do this, but I'm going to take it, and I'm going to put my hands on it, and I'm going to make it happen. But God doesn't call us to make things happen. God calls us to be still and know that he is the Lord. God calls us to trust him, to walk in him. In John chapter 14, it says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And then right after that, it says, then ask whatever you want in my name and it shall be given to you. See, so often the reason that God doesn't provide what we've been waiting for is because we don't look through spiritual eyes. It's because we take, we ask God for something and then we put our hands on it. And we try to make what we want from God happen with our own ability. And the reality is we can't do that. Because we are not the name of the Lord. We do not contain the power of the Lord. James chapter uh, 1 says, If you ask for wisdom, wisdom will be given to you if you believe that you will receive it. See, so often what we're seeking to get from God, we don't receive because we don't actually believe we're going to get it. We just ask Him for it as a safeguard. We're like, God, do this. And then we pick up our hammers, we pick up our tools, and we go and we try to do it. We try to make it happen. And then what happens is we never see the glory of God poured out because we never see God move because we're so busy trying to accomplish it ourselves. We get so discouraged when it doesn't happen. And then we never reflect with God. We never we never see the hand of God move because we are so busy looking at our hands. 
See, but God wants, what God wants from us is to believe that he'll give it, to believe that he'll carry out his promise. And so when he gives us Exodus chapter 15, he's showing us how he carried out his promises. It wasn't on their timetable. It wasn't in their abilities. It was all in his time and all in his ability. They were in Egypt for 400 years and God leads them out. But God doesn't lead them straight into the promised land. God leads them into the desert. Where they wonder, where they think, where they think they're going to die. And this praising, this worshiping that's happening is very short-lasted. Because in verse 22, it says, Then Moses led Israel to the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? So they go into the desert. Now they're in Marah, which Marah in Hebrew literally means bitter. And they find this water, and they begin to drink from this water. Now, remember, this is right after they're singing this song of victory to God. Right after God had led them out of the land. The very next thing is they let it go into the desert, and they don't have anything to drink for three days. And they come across this, uh, this water source that is bitter. And they say, God, Moses, we don't got anything to drink. What are you doing? What are you doing? We don't have anything to drink. You brought us here. Now, now what are we to drink? What are, what are we to do? I don't know about y'all, but that sounds just like me. I ask God to move. He moves. I praise him for it. And then in the very next moment, I'm complaining about how he didn't move. Or was it how he didn't move or was how I didn't see what he was moving in? See, so God is moving right here. They don't have anything to drink. God is moving. They just won't open their eyes to see. Because the very next verse in 25, it says, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Think about that. You're like, God, I want you to move. God, I need this. God, I want this. God, this is what's going to make everything better. Just give it to me. And so Moses cries out, we don't have anything to drink. And God says, here's a piece of wood. If you cry out to God for water and he gives you wood, what are you going to do? What the heck is this piece of wood doing here? And you're going to throw it. And you're going to be like, God, I need water. Show me another source of water. Show me another uh, reservoir. Show me another well. Show me another place where I can receive water. When in reality, God gives them all they needed. They just completely missed it. But Moses saw it. But that's so much like us as God gives us something, but we don't see the value in it. Because sometimes God doesn't want to give you another well of water. Sometimes God wants you to understand how he can make that well pure. Sometimes he wants you to understand you're here for a purpose. You're here for a reason. Just see what he's given you. See, some of you in your lives, you're seeking something. You're wondering what's to come. You're trying to figure out what God has for you. And he's already given you everything you need, but you're too blind to see because you thought it was going to look differently than what it really was. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees had the same problem when Christ was standing before them, but they were so set in what they wanted, they couldn't see what was standing before them. See, some of us are looking for something that's already been delivered to us. We just have to open our eyes to see how the blessing has been given to us, and we have to accept what God has given us. And so if I was Moses and I was like, God, I need water, and he gave me a piece of wood, I'd been like, what the, right? And then the very next verse says he threw it into the water, and the water became 
fit to drink. Now, what if Moses was like, oh, here's a stupid piece of wood, and he just threw it in the water? He was like, okay, and there's a piece of wood, might as well throw it in the bitter water. Can you imagine what bitter water tastes like? Like bitter water? Have you ever had anything bitter to eat? It's not something good. It's not something you enjoy, right? And so can you imagine bitter water? How uh, literally the translation says a putrid source of water. Putrid. The word putrid means, uh, if you ever think of anything putrid, when I think of putrid, I think of uh, larva inside of it. I think of grossness and, and uh, expired things. And so when you think of bitter water, it's got to be a putrid thing. And he takes this wood and he just throws it in it. And Moses did not have the idea, I'm just going to throw this crappy piece of wood in the water. Moses knew who God was. We just see this beautiful song. So Moses said, if this is what you give me, I'm going to be faithful with what you have given me. See, God gives us so much that we think is garbage. What is in reality, all he wants us to do is be faithful with it. Remember what the Bible says, that if, you're, uh, if, you're, if you take care of the little things, I will give you the big things. There's also a parable about this with the talents. One man, and he has so many talents, and he takes them, and he multiplies those talents by putting the work in. Another man, he multiplies the talents that he's given by putting the work in. And another man has a small amount of talent, so he says, I don't have as much as them, so I'm just going to uh, dig a hole and bury the talent, so when that he comes back, it'll be the same amount of talents. And he brings them back, and the, the ruler blesses the man who multiplied the talents, blesses the second man who multiplies the talents. The third man comes in and says, I know that you're a vengeful ruler. I wanted to make sure I didn't lose your talents. And he looks at him, and he says, you didn't do anything. You could have at least put them in the bank so they could have gained interest. He says, but I knew you were a vengeful man. I knew you were a hard man. And he takes the talents from the man who had the little and he gives it to the man who had more. Because so often God gives us a great blessing, but we just look at it as something that we need to bury and hide because it's not as good as everybody else's. Y'all feel me on that? Sometimes God gives us something, but it doesn't look like everybody else's, so we reject it. God gives Moses wood, so he throws it into the water and it becomes fit to drink. It says, there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. See, God gives them nourishment. God gives them refreshment. God gives them hydration. He fills them up. And then it says he puts them to the test. What does this mean? Does God test us? Yes, God tests us. Yes, God puts us to the test so that we can prove to him that we're going to faithfully follow him. Now, we have to understand that God never tempts with evil, as the book of James says, but God does allow us to go through trials and temptations so that we can uh, persevere, because in that same vein, it says God will never tempt us further than we can handle without a way out. He's going to take you further than you can handle, but there's always going to be a way out, right? And so the way out that we see that when God gives us an opportunity, when God gives us something to be faithful with, when he tests us, he's always with us. He never puts us to the test and then sends us into the wilderness by ourselves, right? It's not like that show, uh, Naked and Afraid or whatever, when they take everything they have and they plop them down in the middle of nowhere and they say, survive. That's not the kind of test that God gives us. God gives us tests to say, how will we faithfully pursue him? How will we be faithful with the things that he has given us? 
It says the Lord issued a ruling and instructed them and put them to the test. And look at this next part. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring my, I will not bring on you any of the decrees I brought on any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And so he says, I'll put you to the test. And then he says, here's the test. Do what I have asked you. Keep my commands. Do the things that I've put in front of you. Do the things that I've asked you to be faithful with. Be there for the people that I've asked you to be there for. We see this same semblance in John chapter 14 where it says, If you love me, you'll keep my commands, which we hit on just a little bit ago. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. So following God is not about just entering into that prayer with him and then living your life however you want. Following God is about a full sacrificial life that reflects the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's about loving him, loving others, and making disciples, right? When it says, keep my decrees, pay attention to the commands. He's saying, just love me, love other people, and make disciples. He says the same thing to Abraham, if the people follow me, I will be with them. He says the same thing to Jacob, if the people follow me, I will be with them. You know what they didn't do? They didn't follow him, and where did they go? They went to Egypt. But God didn't give up on them in Egypt. God was still with them in Egypt. God was still faithful to them in Egypt. God was still there for them. And so as we're waiting on everything that we've asked God and it's not coming how we want it to come, sometimes the simplest thing that we have to see is that God's put us in a situation for a reason and we have to open our eyes to how God wants to use us in that situation. We have to open our eyes to what God has given us, even if it's as small as a piece of wood. Maybe that's the thing that you need to make your situation transformed. This wood also represents something else beautiful. At the Last Supper, it says that they ate bitter herbs. These bitter herbs represented their time in captivity. And so when they go into the wandering, when they go into the desert, and they find this bitter water, it's kind of a story of transformation. They had this bitter water, and then one thing makes it new. They take the wood and they throw it in, and now it's refreshed. Now it's a picture of their journey. That It was a bitter thing that they were in captivity, but now they have freedom. This is also a beautiful picture of Jesus coming and dying on the cross for us, a bitter situation where we were destined to eternal separation without him, and now we have something as simple as a piece of wood, as simple as the Son of God in his full complexity, the fullness of who he is, comes and dies for us, changes everything, makes everything pure, gives us the entire inheritance of his kingdom, and changes the trajectory of our entire lives through the transformation of something that looked so simple, a piece of wood. Just like the cross was a simple piece of wood that something magnificent died on. The Son of God died on that cross to give us freedom, to give us transformation, to give us everything that we ever desired. The Son of God created a way out, just like God created a way out here. And in John chapter 4, it's so beautiful right here because he says that he, it changes the bitter water into pure water. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well, I am the living water. I am the living water. I am the one who can tell you all things. I am the one who can accept you. I can make your bitter situation pure. I can make your bitter situation better. I can show you the power, the majesty of the kingdom of God if you just follow me. 
If you just keep my decrees, if you just open your eyes, if you just trust what I'm going to say is true, if you just uh, come along with me, if you forsake everything that you think you need and trust that I am the Lord, that I am my name, I will lead you. Just like Psalm 23 says, I will lead you by still waters. I will take you into the land. The Israelites would have understood this as, oh, we, we need to follow God so that we can have the land fill, flowing with milk and honey, so we can have the land that he promised us. And it says it won't bring on the diseases. If he follows them, he won't bring the diseases that he brought to the Egyptians. What does this mean? What does it mean? He's saying to his people, if you just follow me, I won't bring the same diseases upon you. It's a beautiful picture of if you follow me, I will keep the, the death away from you. I will keep the disease of sin away from you. I will save you from the separation that is caused by that sin, and I, I will be your God. I will heal you, as it says right here. I am the Lord who heals you. It says, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 uh, springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Now, it's so beautiful right here. It's the beautiful picture of what we've been saying, the 12 springs. This represents the 12 tribes of Israel. This represents the peace, the knowing that God has uh, called him to be his people, knowing that God still protects and loves his people, so he sets them by the 12 springs. Springs of fresh water, right? He sets them by those 12 springs that will refresh them. And it says he, they camp by the water, which is a representation of the living water. And it says in 70 palm trees. Now, the 70 palm trees is something that you wouldn't necessarily see. But this is actually a reference back to the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, when they try to build the tower up to God and they try to become gods themselves, God separates them into 70 nations. And so he's saying, my people and then the people who are uh, following false gods, I want you to be my people. He reminds them that if they follow him, he, they will be his people set apart from the rest of the other people who choose to follow the false worship and the false gods and the false idols that clings to them, that they desire. He's saying, I want you to be set apart. This is also a beautiful picture of the 12 tribes of Israel as eternity with God and separation from God. So in Exodus chapter 15, God is giving us these beautiful references, these beautiful prophecies to what is to come. This beautiful picture for us as we worship God for the victories that he's given us. And we understand that God has a victory for us, but we have to open our eyes to understanding that the victory might not look like how we thought it was going to look like. And sometimes God puts us in a situation that doesn't look like a victory. And we have to change our perception to see how it's going to be a victory for someone else and for us. See, because the reality, the way that God moves is not always just for us. Don't get me wrong, it is always for us, but it's not always just for us. See, sometimes we're at a spring that seems bitter, and it doesn't just nourish you when God moves. See, sometimes God wants to use you to nourish generations. Sometimes God wants to use you to nourish the multitudes through the power of His Holy Spirit. Some of you at your jobs, God has positioned you to be the nourishment there, to be the living water there, to be the ones who see all the bitterness and show them how God can make it pure, 
to be the ones who are the ones worshiping God for every single victory. But sometimes I think we fall into that next category where we're in those places where God has sent us to bring nourishment and we begin to look at them so negatively that God says that we say, this is where we have to be. I don't want to be here, so I'm going to complain about everything. And then when we begin to do that, you know what people see God as? If they follow God and they're that miserable, why would I do it? Right? We have to look at our situation as a situation that God has placed us in. Now, sometimes God places us in places for a season, or sometimes God places us somewhere for the long haul. But we have to understand that if it's for a season or the long haul, we were put there for a purpose to show them how a bitter situation can be made sweet. Through one event, through one thing, through one act of kindness, through one act of love. Through one man dying on a cross to give everyone reconciliation with him. To bring everyone back together. To show the world that there's something different. That when we get bitter water, we're okay with it because we know that God can make it sweet. To show the world that when we get served up a lemon, that's okay, we can make lemonade. To show the world that we don't mourn like others mourn. To show the world that we don't celebrate like others celebrate. We celebrate in the victory of God. We mourn in the victory of God. Because no matter good, no matter bad, we still have the victory of God. And no matter what we're waiting on that we think is going to make us happy, the only thing that's going to make you happy, the only thing that's going to make you joyful is the power of God. And so what we have to do is we have to begin to look at the, what God is not bringing us as a way that he is protecting us. We have to begin to look at what God has brought us and see it as a way that we can give others victory and see it as a way that we can trust God. See it as a way as him caring for us. But don't overlook the little things that he brings you like a piece of wood. Because that piece of wood's probably got a great purpose for you. That job that you hate probably has a great purpose for you. That car that you drive that you can't stand probably has a great purpose for you. That house that feels like everything's falling apart has probably got a great purpose for you. That apartment where you got noisy neighbors has probably got a great purpose for you. In school right now and you feel like it's overwhelming, that's a great purpose for you. Stop looking at everything through the lens of a human and look at everything through the lens of Christ that if God has positioned you anywhere, it's for a purpose. Just like the Israelites, they're in a desert with bitter water, but for, it was for a great purpose so that they could see how God would care for them. In Exodus chapter 16, we're going to see another way that God cared for them. We're going to see another way that God provided for them. God wants provision for you, and it's all through His Son, Jesus. He, he wants to give you freedom. He wants to give you victory. He wants to give you peace. He wants to give you victory. Just like He gave the Israelites victory. He wants you to know that he is the same God who blows the wind. He wants you to know that he is the same God who created all things, that created the depths of the sea, and he can take care of you. He loves you. He desires you. He sees you through the lens of his son, and he sees perfection. He sees the one that he desires because Jesus came for you. He was ridiculed and mocked for you. He was ridiculed and mocked for me. He died on a cross so that we could receive freedom through his victory. He went to a tomb for you so that he, we could receive freedom through his victory. Three days later, he resurrected from the dead so that we could receive victory 
Now he sits at the right hand of the Father because we have received victory. And so as we pursue God, as we look at our situation, look at it through the lens of Jesus. It might be hard. It might be rough. You might not understand what God is doing. But I promise you one thing. You might be in a bitter situation. You might not understand it. But God wants to give you victory. And God has a purpose for the position that he's placed you in. He has something great that he wants for you because he knows that you're the only one who can accomplish what he's called you to. He loves you so much. He desires you so much. And he gives you so much opportunity to be the victory. So how can we be the victory today? We can celebrate the victory that he gave us today that we got to come and we got to worship him. We can celebrate the victory that he gave us today that we got out of bed. We can celebrate the victory today that he's called us to go out those doors to love people and to show others the victory. We can celebrate him today that we get to wake up on Monday morning and you get to go to work. Some of you don't like that, but that's a victory, right? You get to go into the field in which he has called you to show people how the bitter things can be turned sweet through the power of Jesus. You are the one that God wants to use to give somebody else a victory. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Thank you for listening this week. To learn more about ID Clifton, including our gathering times, small groups, and events coming up, visit us at idclifton.com. Again, thank you for listening to the ID Clifton podcast. And remember, love God and love others. Thank you.